0: This episode is sponsored by VirtuousCon. Tired of virtual conventions that leave you feeling like you're on the outside looking in? It doesn't have to be that way. On February 20th through the 21st, you're invited to be a part of a brand new experience in virtual sci-fi and comic conventions at VirtuousCon. They've created a virtual space that looks, feels, and functions like an in-person convention so that you can experience everything a con is supposed to be about, meeting and interacting with the artists and the fans that you love. There are no YouTube or Zoom links at VirtuousCon. Everything happens live in the virtual space. Come browse the virtual floor show, Meet over 50 amazing artists face to face and support their work. Interact with panelists and ask your questions live on their virtual stage. They're also excited to welcome DC Comics and Subsum Media as Virtuous Con sponsors and vendors at their event. To sweeten the pot, Virtuous Con is free for attendees. A limited number of virtual booths are still available to vendors. Visit www.virtuouscon.com to sign up. Then join them on February 20th for the ultimate sci fi and comic cultural convention experience. Blurred up, blurred up. Welcome to the show where we talk about nerd culture from a BPOV, a black POV. You can find us on Instagram at BLERDUP. You can find us on Facebook at BLERDUP. And you can find us on Twitter at BLERDU. Find us also on blurred.com, our partners' awesome website full of nerd content from a black cultural lens. I am your host, Brendan, and I'm joined by Draper howdy y'all how's everyone doing this wonderful week now we have a great show today we're going to be talking about the latest movie from hbo max judas and the black messiah we're going to do a deep dive into our review our perspectives facts trivia the works we're also going to talk about its accompanying soundtrack and then we're going to get caught up on the latest episode of wandavision and we actually have some fan questions so stick around so let's jump right into the movie. This is the fictionalized take on a real event where William O'Neill got caught by the FBI, blackmailed into becoming a Pro informant, and ultimately assisted in the assassination of black socialist and anti-imperialist revolutionary Fred Hampton. And I want to emphasize socialism and anti-imperialist from the jump, like the film, Because the most famous black liberation leaders of that day are often stripped, whitewashed of those characteristics to be presented in a more acceptable image for white people and the powers that be, as well as, in part, control the ideas of black people and other marginalized groups struggling today. I know many listeners of the show already know, but Martin Luther King was a socialist and anti-imperialist which is rarely brought up in regular conversations and school teachings. And it it burns me up every year on his birthday when Democrats like your Obamas, the Clintons, the Bidens, the Warrens, the Kamalas. And to a lesser extent, Bernie put King's name in their mouth when they don't represent what he stood for to varying degrees. And I'll talk more about that later in relation to the soundtrack. The other thing I want to emphasize here comes from a son of Baldwin quote on Facebook. He had not seen the movie prior to his comment, but thought this movie to be, quote, a cautionary tale about how the system is set up to deprive people of resources and then use the promise of those resources to get them to become complicit in ruining any chance of dismantling the system. Not only does white supremacist capitalist patriarchy have us suspicious of one another, but it gives us reason to be suspicious of one another, and he's both. Impressed and disgusted by the insidiousness and success of that strategy.
1: That's crazy. I mean, I love that that quote because it's so spot on.
0: Totally. So if you haven't seen this movie, know that going in. This movie isn't focused primarily on Fred Hampton's politics or how he grew up and became a revolutionary. This is not like Spike Lee's X, which spans a greater length of time and puts Malcolm X at the center of the narrative. and Black Messiah, were already dropped into the time when Fred Hampton was nearing the height of his reach and influence. The opening scenes are dedicated to William O'Neill, which sets the tone for the rest of the film. Director Shaka King said in an interview that, quote, the best way to highlight Hampton's ideology is to contrast it. So in a lot of ways, he thought it was a strong choice to make William O'Neill a central character because you can indict capitalism in real time. You don't have to talk about it objectively. You can show it. How do you feel about that?
1: Yeah, I think it was a good decision uh, from the storytelling perspective and being able to kind of lay out the the atmosphere in which uh, the, the character of, of, of Fred Hampton, the, um, the, the, the person of Fred Hampton was, was operating within. So you were able to see, you know, um, the, the federal, you know, law enforcement side of it through, you know, uh, William O'Neill, uh, and his interactions. So I thought that that was a a good way to do it as opposed to just like the camera following Fred around all the time.
0: Yeah. I think that we've seen a lot of biopics as you said, following around a famous black person, seeing the oppression they've seen and, you know, forging that strength to endure and, and what have you. And that's still important. I'll never get tired of seeing that, but I think this was a slightly fresher approach. This movie had to do a tough juggling act. It had to characterize an important black political figure that by and large, the mainstream doesn't really know much about it had to give audiences just enough to understand the basics of his politics. He name drops important nuggets for people watching the film to go discover for themselves, like socialism and Maoism, which surprised me. He made a point to dismiss black capitalism as well.
2: We ain't gonna fight capitalism black capitalism. We're gonna fight capitalism with socialism.
0: The director did an interview with GQ addressing purposefully putting those terms in the film. And he said... I don't believe in black capitalism. I don't think it works at all. All it does is empower a very minute percentage of black people, which makes it useless. Black capitalism is just self-serving, ultimately. And that's why we put that line at the top, just to let you know. Nah. I know people assume, because it's a movie being distributed by Warner Brothers, that we're going to make Fred Hampton a liberal or something. But I wanted people to know up front, that's not this movie. In terms of what we want to take from it i really do think fred and the panthers had the answers so ideally these are the heroes of our film i want people to come away from this movie and learn about them and what they stood for and hopefully be as affected by their ideology as i have been
1: yeah there was a there was a line when uh, fred first went in front of his first crowd in the film and uh where you know kind of he he met Deborah for the first time, that mm-hmm. scene. But he was just like, you know, there was a lot of, you know, great, you know, lines from that where he was just kind of spitting. But um his was like, capitalism, you know, doesn't matter the color. You know, it could be red, black, you know, you know, whatever, whatever. It's just capitalism. That's 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 what's oppressing you, basically. I was just like, yeah, that's that's what I'm seeing when it comes to to black capitalism and, and this idea that just like as blacks, we have to really buy into this black—I mean, this capitalistic system—if we want to, you know, have the same power and and everything else that uh, that the, the the oppressive white structure has had so far on us. So. Um, I was I was really happy to hear, you know, uh, that mention and to, Mm. you know, for him to kind of lay it out for that audience. And that audience was kind of like amen and and everything else like that, where, you know, he was really speaking to, you know, people's real lives at that point.
0: Because at this point, a lot of the quote unquote black leaders that we as a culture love and cherish don't talk that way anymore.
1: What you were saying earlier about, you know, Martin Luther King and everything as well, you know. That that made me think of another line from that scene, where he was talking about uh, they'll let you change the name of your college or your name or throw on the daishiki, but like this is really just. The candy coated facade of gradual reform, you know, basically mm-hmm. where you, you 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 go back to to MLK, where it's like when MLK was just saying like, oh, we should be able to, you know, ride on any seat on the bus. We should be able to do all this. It was all good. And then when he started trying to, you know, work with with entire, you know, Multi-ethnic, you know, working-class people issues. You know, that's when he became a little bit more of a threat to, you know, the system, and that's when, you know, you started having people, you know, thinking about like, how do we deal with this guy now? It was all fine when it was just like the, you know, the cosmetic, you know, um, aspects of of equality. Now that you're actually trying to create a working-class coalition. Um, now now you, you've become a threat to the uh, to the system.
0: Totally. That interview though it's it's enlightening about his vision, Chaka King's vision, and even some things that got cut out that he wanted to include. For example, he wanted more women in the film, like Wanda Ross, who was responsible for creating the breakfast program featured in the movie. I personally think she should have gotten some screen time because that was featured more than once. But anyway, I highly recommend checking out that interview. Uh, I like the phrase he called, he coined the black excellence industrial complex that we're experiencing today.
1: Yeah. Perfect. Perfect. Uh, I mean, the, I mean, that's what I was thinking of when, when we were talking about black capitalism earlier, I was just thinking about black excellence. Like I'm on clubhouse now, and there's Mm -hmm. so many, you know, groups on clubhouse where it's just like, you know, multi, you know, get your, you know, multiple, you know, you know incomes and everything else like that and make yourself this and everybody's got like a business and everybody's a ceo in their bio and like i started my company and everyone's pitching as soon as they get on stage and i'm just like man it's a little bit you know exhausting you know for me to just constantly be bombarded with that but um you know and i'm going in there and i'm trying to you know organize and 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 you know create solidarity and everyone's just like but my business you know and it's just like i understand that like you you're just trying to make your way in this world but you know we got to you know kind of think about it from you know multiple angles you know
0: no totally i back to your point about mlk trying to connect with uh, multi ethnic groups the other idea i'm glad that was included was the rainbow coalition concept hamptons was the first 20th century black-led movement to employ this. And in relation, another thing brought up was crossing racial lines in effort to appeal to racist white people on a class level. There was a great scene in there.
2: Look, we oppressed your people for a long time. I didn't oppress shit. And my folks grew up poor. They were sharecroppers. AKA, the overseer. And what if the overseer had banded with the slaves and cut the masses through? Well then, comrade... We might not be in this funky-ass ghetto right now. I'm not talking about the west side or the south side. I'm talking this filthy-ass motherfucker right here. Shit. We almost got into it with a rat over a parking space. <laughs> I bet y'all babies getting the same bullshit education. Y'all paying the same taxes to get your heads whooped in by the same motherfucking pigs. Ain't that a trick? We pay them, huh? We pay the pigs to run us off of our corners. Let me ask y'all something. If this building caught fire right now, what would y'all worry about, huh? Water and escape. If somebody would ask you, what's your culture during this fire, brother? Water. That's my culture. Well, how about your politics? Water and escape. Well, guess what? America's on fire right now. And until that fire is extinguished, don't nothing else mean a goddamn thing.
1: Chicago. He was talking about Chicago, not not Shreveport. Not you know, like we are the most segregated city. So like in in Chicago, like all of these groups have their own little enclaves. This is the Puerto Rican area. This is the 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 white racist area. This is the black area, and everybody kind of just like knew the boundaries of of their areas. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he basically went across the boundaries as kind of like a as as an ambassador, as like creating kind of like a Chicago UN, you know, in order to, you know, fight against this kind of invasive enemy, you know, which was Daly's pigs, as he put it, you know, mm. so um, and and was able to kind of get everybody kind of on board and standing side by side. That was like incredible.
0: As I said, post-election, we have to reimagine new strategies that reach others outside of our respective groups. And Hampton was all about that. There's a recent tweet by, <laughs> I love this name, Marks is my nigga. <laughs> that relates.
1: No, that's that's a that's a classic uh Twitter handle right there.
0: <laughs> yeah, the the tweet says, "Feminism is good. Identity politics is good. Intersectionality is good. Liberalism is a poison that diluted those tools which were designed to aid in our analysis of class struggle. If you remove the poison through use of a
1: dialectical lens, you will see the value of all tools." Spit Whoever you are, I'm, I mean, I'm I'm looking for that account now. I might have to follow that account to see see what else they, they whatever knowledge they're dropping. But, um, yeah, I mean, that's the way I feel about you know, as it as it pertains to class. Like a lot of people, you know, will accuse, you know, people of being kind of class reductionists, you know, or something mm-hmm. else like that. But it's just like you have to understand that it's just like. If you if you actually want something to change, you've got to get more people on board, not just the 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 people that are in this, you know, one, you know, s- you know, subcategory of oppressed people. And once people realize and have like a consciousness and uh, I was listening to somebody the other day uh, talking about like. The confidence and the idea of kind of like class confidence, Mm -hmm. you know, that you can you're able to do something that you're able to kind of make some change. If you've got if you want to win some victories uh, that are more than cosmetic, you've got to basically take that Fred Hampton, you know, Rainbow Coalition or Martin Luther King uh, kind of approach. You're totally right.
0: And that class analysis is too often absent in basic political discussion, especially in mainstream liberal media in favor of identity politics, representation. For the past five years, it was no more white men as a way to blunt a white man whose presence and ideas have single-handedly changed the political conversations across the country about what poor and working class people deserve. Bernie spoke about class more than any other candidate to a fault, to be fair. I think Bernie leaned too hard into that at times to his political disadvantage but I do commend him for bringing it up a lot because just saying black a lot felt like pandering from a number of candidates. And two, Bernie's rhetoric got the attention of a lot more independents who voted for Obama, but swung to Trump in the general election. It tells us that class politics should be at the center. Even on the internet, I don't know if you've encountered this, but when black leftists bring up the plight of other people of color, there is sometimes pushback with the sentiment of we have our own problems. They can advocate for themselves. Like I've experienced that personally when talking about the migrant crisis at the border or the plight of Palestinians. And I find that to be a position that is destined for defeat. Working together is the only way to achieve true progress.
1: Yeah. I brought that up specifically in, in an ADOS clubhouse room um ADOS uh African or American descendants of slavery Mm -hmm. uh chattel slavery um and um I was just like, well, you know, because, you know, um, the Caribbean people have their own, you know, claim against, you know, their colonial oppressors. And they're basically working on that. Mm -hmm. And everybody around the world, like all in the diaspora, you know, what if everybody was like amplifying each other's movements and and providing even a a more solidaristic front? And they were just like, nah, it's, you know, like. We've got to be dealing like the American issue is completely different, and we've got to deal with only our stuff. And you know, it, you know, it's it's very much concerned with like immigration law and everything as well. Stop letting people immigrate to the United States because it's disadvantaging, you know, mm-hmm. these, uh, you know, and and they're coming in and taking benefits. I mean. For me, it's very count. I mean, that aspect of it is very counterproductive. Mm-hmm. You know, I do believe in in ADO's reparations, and you know, I I would like t- that to to advance as much as possible. But uh, going anti-solidaristic is just very counterproductive, in my opinion. Totally, that
0: was a big tangent. Let's uh, <laughs> let's get back to the to the film. The second thing uh, I think the film had to juggle was, as you said before, shedding light on the inner workings of. Pro, because i don't think we've ever seen this level of detail dramatized before and for those who don't know they infiltrated leftist movements like dr king's malcolm x's nation of islam from the mid 50s to the mid 70s i think by and large the film did a good job of juggling all all this together
1: yeah i would agree because like um we often uh, we often hear people dropping knowledge, you know, like quote unquote dropping knowledge, and it's just like, man, do you know about COINTELPRO? Pro? And then they don't say anything else about it. You, read about it, man. Read about COINTELPRO. But like having it uh, a depiction of this in kind of popular, you know, media to a certain extent, I think is going to be enlightening for a lot of people.
0: Absolutely. And there's been criticism of the film, and I'll get to that a little bit later that the film kind of glosses over a lot of things. But I think enough was purposefully put in to get people curious to research further. And I certainly did after I watched this film.
1: Yeah, that that's facts as well. It's just like so many, so many particular you know characters in that movie. I was just like, oh, like I want to f- find out more about that person. I want to find out more about like all these other you know names that they mentioned and how mm-hmm. accurate it was. So, um, so definitely, it it inspired my curiosity. I did know uh, a bit about this, you know, before, um, but before the movie. But uh, like, I just I just became so much more. Uh, interested in finding out some of the particulars and how many like liberties they might've taken and kind of what they might've glossed over. Um, but it was what a two more than, like a two hour and 15 minute movie. Right. And it's just like, you know, how much can you put in there? You know, when it was already kind of like jam packed. Exactly.
0: Um, let's go to the performances. Daniel Kalua is excellent as Fred Hampton. We mentioned uh, the mannerisms that the actors from One Night in Miami nailed. And Hampton is spot on with his charisma and humility. We talked about before, he's walking up in these spaces that aren't meant for him. These hostile spaces, super calm and suave. He even has that slight slouch that we've seen him in from limited pictures and video clips. But uh, let's be real. He does not look like Fred Hampton at all.
1: No, nah, that was that was the thing. It was just like I, I kind of like lost immersion from from all the footage and pictures I had seen of Fred Hampton. Mm-hmm. I was just like he's Daniel Kaluuya is a very good actor and he's, you know, doing an incredible job like trying to re, you know bring that that essence to this role, but again, uh you know, I I just thought that I could have I'm not sure who else he would have put In that role but it's just like I'll just say one thing like about Fred Hampton and Daniel Kaluuya And um, Basically everybody else in this film It's just like they don't make 21 year olds Like they used to
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah I I was gonna note that in in the trivia section So right um, Fred Hampton died When he was 21 years old and
1: Kaluuya does not look 21 (laughs) Not only that, but it's just like how 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 much power he wielded as a 21 year old and how much of uh, a movement maker he was and, you know, how how, you know, well read and and, you know, you know, into the the theory and the praxis and everything at, at 21. It's just like he did all that. Before the age of twenty, I mean, before the age of twenty-one, before he reached twenty-two, you know what I'm saying? And most most people don't even know how to haven't signed a first lease on their apartment by the time they're twenty-two. You know? No, you're
0: totally right. You're totally right. On the acting bit, it kind of felt like Chadwick playing like James Brown. Wonderful actor and portrayal, but the look not so much. I think you mentioned that you wouldn't, you don't know who could play Fred Hampton. I was thinking of two people. I think someone like Nate Parker would have been a better choice, if not for his troubled past. Yeah, I agree. I think uh, Jonathan Majors from Lovecraft Country could have looked closer to the part
1: too. Yeah, I agree. I like I like both of those castings. Like I said, I didn't have really uh, any good idea of who could have, you know, embodied this uh, dynamic, you know, man. But um, but both of those, I could I could kind of see those as well. Um, but again. Daniel Kaluuya was uh, like an incredible portrayal, even oh, totally. though he didn't really he fit the fantastic.
0: look. And Lakeith Sandfield as William O'Neill is great too. He's really the only one who has a true arc in this film. Fred Hampton is portrayed as that kind of Captain America, never wavering kind of man. And his enemies are staunch in their opposition. And in contrast, we see O'Neill over time struggle with his predicament due to fear of violence against him and guilt. How wild is it, though, that Sandfield's latest big films are about him selling out his own people? That
1: and uh, Sorry to Bother You. Yeah, that's that's kind of crazy. I I thought about that, actually, when I was watching the movie. I was just like, man, how does he keep on getting these roles where he just ends up being like such a traitor? (laughs) You know, also,
0: you know, you mentioned Sorry to Bother You, but also in Get Out, Sandfield was used by white people, right?
1: It's yeah, wild. he start he's starting to be typecast as you know, like you know, that fitting into that that con, you know this black person that's fitting into these kind of white spaces and being used as kind of a tool. That's that's really weird typecasting. But I mean, three three roles, you know, three major roles like that. That's crazy. Better get out, brother.
2: Get out, yo, no.
1: yo, yo, kill, Get out! Get out! Get out!
2: Get out! Get out!
0: For sure. The supporting cast is stellar, too. Dominic Fishback from Project Power and The Hate You Give. I think she was in The Deuce as well. I think she she brought a really special kind of warmth to this film as Deborah Johnson, Hampton's romantic partner.
1: Yeah, I I hadn't really seen her in anything else because I didn't watch, I think, any of those other. I didn't watch Project Power for sure um but um but yeah I I, I looked at her and I saw that she I, I saw that she was like this um very kind of like warm and humanizing you know aspect of of kind of Fred Hampton you know mm-hmm. um you know just when she would say something and then the expression on his face you know um you know and you would see you know the the change and you would see the way that he was kind of molded and moved a, a bit more uh through Deborah Uh, The director said that it was important for
0: him to include her in this just to further humanize Fred Hampton. as not just the guy yelling on the limited clips that we see. The other Dominique, Thorne, is badass as Judy Harmon. She has a a really terrifying scene near the end of the first act. And you know what she's about to do in the future? What's that? She's going to be Ironheart, Marvel's Ironheart.
1: Ah, so she's going to play, uh, what is it, Rihanna? Um,
0: Williams, I believe is her name. Williams, Re, yeah. Riri Williams. Which is weird because right now, currently, Dominic Thorne is in her early 20s, but Riri Williams in the comic books is a teenager. So I'm curious how they're going to adapt that storyline
1: into the MCU. Well, if Daniel Kaluuya, Kaluuya can play a 21-year-old.
0: Are we are we going back to anything the 90s? Is where possible. It's like... Are we going back to the early 2000s where Tom McGuire is like a 28-year-old man playing a high school kid <laughs> in the movies?
1: Exactly. Yeah. Okay. And Andrew Garfield or whatever, you know, right. they're all in their 30s and they're playing like these right. high school kids.
0: Other up-and-coming Black actors like Ashton Sanders from Moonlight are here and they all serve their roles really well, though they don't get much time to shine. I think, as you said, there's
1: just too much going on. Hey, what about, uh, you know, the limited role of uh martin sheen as j edgar hoover you know you would just he hear his voice over yeah and the prosthetics on his face yeah it was really good
0: have you seen a real picture of, of hoover
1: yeah i have but i'm just saying like from martin sheen going from the west wing to being j edgar hoover that that's kind of a wild swing too
0: i see him as that as that guy who who set up al simmons and spawn
1: you left
2: me to die in that bio
0: complaint.
2: remember ah. Simmons. You sent me to hell, Jason. I'm here to return the favor.
1: That too.
0: I saw a real picture of J. Edgar Hoover, and he just has the most punchable face. It's like him and that guy who lobbied to throttle internet in America. I forgot his name, but he, but those dudes have Agent some. Ajit Yeah, I just want to go off on that, dude. Anyway, let's talk about the directing writing credits. We already talked about Shaka King. This is his feature-length film debut. Interesting. Well, from a major label, at least, a major studio, at least. And something that I noticed in his direction with the music choices and the choices that he didn't make, this film was a bit minimal with the score. It rarely came in to kind of force you to feel something. I feel like King trusted the actors to do that for this movie, which is a choice that I really respect.
1: Yeah, because people don't realize how much, like some uh filmmakers will rely on the the score to do the the heavy lifting Mm. uh just because scores can be so powerful you know that they you know i mean most people a lot a lot of people don't realize that like when the score comes on it's manipulating you to you know feel a certain way or to expect you know this is going to happen or anything else like that you know, in in every genre, you know, you think of like horror films, and it's just like you start to hear the sound and the tension starts to build. All of those mm-hmm. things are are manipulated through the, the score, but if you have a strong enough set of actors, like uh, in play acting, like on stage, you don't really have so much of that score. You just have to rely on the the actors to be able to carry that load and and you know transmit you or not transmit, but um, basically make you feel and and make you you understand and and connect to the characters and the story
0: no you're totally right so shark king was a co-writer alongside the lucas brothers who approached king about the project they pitched it to him as the departed inside the world of Pro
1: and and the thing about it is is the departed is not even the original iteration of that that's um there was the the hong kong film um that basically um oliver stone just ripped off or it was oliver stone right that did the departed i I thought it was scorsese No, scorsese scorsese yeah scorsese just kind of ripped completely um infernal affairs i believe is the name of the hong kong film in english um, but it's a trilogy, and the second two, mo- uh, the the second and third movies are kind of not so good. But the first one is incredible, um, and it's basically uh, that's the original telling of that story. And Scorsese admitted, "Yeah, we just took that story and we just put you know American actors in it and basically retold that story because it was incredible." White Americans white americans yeah Mm -hmm. not uh any ethnic americans you know irish people and italian people and stuff like that
0: yeah the lucas brothers apparently had taken the idea to numerous studios for uh, over a year but none of them were interested another writer was will burson and all these people are largely TV writers, but I think they did a great job here. And apparently the Lucas Brothers, who are black, they have a film in the works with Phil Lord and Chris Miller of uh, Spider-Verse and 21 Jump Street fame. So keep
1: your eye out for that. Uh, the Lucas Brothers, they're twins, right? I'm not sure. I think I think that they, they also do uh, like they're a comedy all- thing.
0: Yes, yes, they're also actors as well. Like comedic I, th-
1: I think they're like stand-ups though mm-hmm. like they have a stand-up bit where they're twins on stage or something
0: yeah it's interesting that we have these people like you know the Russo brothers who were in in comedy and then they step up to do these these more serious films Fascinating. yeah and then
1: people like uh Boots Riley you know who was kind of like a, a musician with no kind of film background but kind of an avowed you know leftist slash socialist it created a uh, sorry to bother you you know um and I could very easily see him going into more serious films um post you know that the success of of that film
0: or you have jordan peel of course who was a comedian and then now we have you know he's he's a powerhouse
1: yeah uh for for horror and you know cosmic horror that type of stuff
0: yeah well I'm gonna just put in my closing thoughts here i i highly recommend this movie uh definitely go in with the aforementioned expectations and i think you'll enjoy it as well i think there have been some pushback they're like this this isn't what i thought it was going to be and i just know that it's not centered around fred hampton it's centered around william o'neill and i think you'll have a good time
1: yeah i mean um i i would agree that you know the from from last uh podcast you know we talked about um one night in miami these kind of like biopic films telling uh stories that you know are in black spaces um this is another one where it's just like i, th- I think that uh we're we're you know enjoying a, a period of time where a, a lot of our stories are being told um and for that i'm i'm, I'm quite thankful you know because young people who consume media uh, like this and not necessarily you know reading the books. This is going to give them a lot to kind of draw upon. You know, a lot of the references like when when uh Fred was in jail and he was like I might when he was writing the letter I might have the pigs reading Fanon, you know, and everything else mm. like that, where he's talking about organizing and getting everybody together in there because they're, you know, even the the COs in there were um you know part of the working class. You know mm. um and so uh, a lot of those types of things, you know, uh, if, you, if you are, you know, interested in those types of things, you're going to, you know, even if you're just reading Fanon quotes and not entire works of Fanon, uh, that is going to, you know, wake a lot of people up, I think. So I, I'm, I'm happy that these types of movies are being made and I enjoyed the movie quite a bit.
0: On that note, I want to recommend five books that you can read to complement the film. Number one, I I got this from OK Player. Number one, Death of a Black Panther, the Fred Hampton story. Number two, The Assassination of Fred Hampton, How the FBI and Chicago Police Murdered a Black Panther by Jeffrey Haas. Number three, Agents of Repression, the FBI's Secret Wars Against the Black Panther Party and the American Indian Movement by by Ward Churchill and Jim Vanderwall. Number four, Liberation, Imagination, and the Black Panther Party. A New Look at the Black Panthers and Their Legacy by Kathleen Cleaver and George, I'm going to butcher this this, this name, Catsificus And number five, The Bullet to the Ballot, The Illinois Chapter of the Black Panther Party and Radical Coalition Politics in Chicago by Jacoby Williams. Now, before we move on to the soundtrack, I do wanna do some fact checking and trivia for the film. So we already said before that O'Neill was 17 years old when he was caught uh, for driving a car, a stolen car. And In real life, let me go back. In real life, cut. In real life, the Chicago Tribune reported that O'Neill was a career, career criminal who did everything from car theft and home invasion to kidnapping and torture. And all this was by the age he was 17. And that's when he was caught for driving a stolen car and trying to cross over into Michigan. Now, obviously, Lakeith Sanfield didn't look anywhere near that age in the movie. And as we already talked about, Kalia didn't
1: look 21 at all. Um, Go ahead. Yeah, it's it's interesting because, like, when they when they when they knocked his hat off when he was first stealing the car and he was like he ain't nothing but a kid you know and everything I was like that's a grown man what you talking what you talking <laughs> about he looked
0: like a grown man <laughs> it's like that it's like the, um an anime where it's like Yusuke looks like he's like twenty five and he's like fourteen or something
1: or yeah cool man they don't they like... don't they don't make seventeen year olds like they used to that's all I'm gonna say
0: they never made him that way. You look it, it's, it's, it's straight up anime world it's like Kuwabara has this deep voice man and he's like I'm 14 <laughs> um,
1: his pubes just dropped man
0: yeah I like girls now <laughs> anyway um, number two by O'Neill's own account in the Eyes on the Prize interview after he stole the car he wasn't flipped as an informant right after he was caught as the movie portrayed you know in the movie it was like the blood was still dripping from him when uh, Roy Mitchell came to talk to him. In real life, he was called several months later by Mitchell, and it was only to tell him that he knew what he had done and that they could work something out. And then he called a few months later after that to set up the informant agreement. Number three, it is unproven whether O'Neill actually drugged Hampton personally or just another FBI agent did it. but. Fred Jr. said that his father's autopsy revealed that he had enough fentanyl to knock out a horse, and he would have died from that even if the police hadn't shot him. Uh, Shaka King believes that O'Neill did it, so just take that with the slight grain of salt. That was a bit fictionalized, as far as we know. Number four. After assisting in the raid that led to Hampton's death, O'Neill kept working with the FBI, contrary to the movie's suggestion that he got to leave and manage a gas station. In 1972, he helped convict a police sergeant who was allegedly killing drug dealers. He then went into Federal Witness Protection Program in 1973 because his cover was blown. He was given a new alias, William Hart. He reportedly returned to Chicago in the 1980s after the tension of living under women's protection led to him splitting with his first wife. He worked as a lawyer, interestingly enough. Uh, next, reports about O'Neill's remorse are mixed. He definitely respected and admired Hampton. In his interview, he said he was pretty dedicated to the black struggle. I felt like he gave a lot. He gave his life and out of the 16 months that I knew him, I don't have anything bad to say about him. I'm sorry that he died as he did. He was, in my opinion, he was murdered by the Chicago Police Department, and I feel bad about that. I felt like he was a person that died for what he believed in. Had he lived today, he would probably be a politician, a successful politician. And he said that he was shocked by them actually killing Fred. He thought they were just going to raid the place. On the other hand, he did say, I didn't feel like I had done anything. I didn't walk in there with guns. I didn't shoot him. FBI didn't do it. I felt somewhat like I was betrayed. I felt like if anyone should have known it was going to be a raid that morning, I should have known. Also, I felt like I could have been caught in that raid. I was there that night and I felt like if I had laid down, I probably would have been a victim, so I felt betrayed. I felt like I felt like I was expendable. I think if I look back at myself, I say if I had never met Mitchell, I would probably be in jail or dead. If you ask me if I am a happy man, I'm not happy. No. I'm not even content.
1: Damn. Yeah. That's um I mean that you know, it seems like he was a very conflicted, you know, human, you know, post, you know, the events that happened and of course who wouldn't be um and we know that when The Eyes on the Prize 2 documentary aired, the day after that he committed he he died by suicide
0: do you know how he died um
1: uh i don't know i just know that um they aired the documentary on mlk day mm-hmm. in 1990 mm-hmm. uh and then the day after that he died by suicide so i thought that you know On one hand it's kind of diabolical to release something like that on on black history i mean like on a black history icon holiday basically on like one of our only holidays yeah let's go on ahead and drop this so whoever you know kind of made that decision that that's the proper time to air it uh was nuts uh and um and then after that like how it affected him because of you know, perhaps how conflicted he was. And, you know, they were asking him questions about like, you know, how would you explain what you did to your son? And then basically this whole thing gets aired and it's just like, well, you know, uh, I've, 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 I've had enough, you know, I can't, I can't go on. That's crazy. Here are some
0: details on his death. So as you said, he spent his last night alive on MLK Jr. Day. He was with his uncle, at his house and he reportedly was acting strange. He would go to the bathroom and just stay there for like 10 or 15 minutes. And then when the Uncle went to go check on him at at one point, he he tried to just leave and jump out of his uncle's second story window but was ultimately stopped. But then he escaped eventually and ran onto an expressway and was hit by a car and killed. And it was ruled a suicide. But apparently get this it was the second time he had tried to do that he was only injured the first time so he was trying to to go out but he finally succeeded on the second
1: attempt man that is um that's i i didn't read too much it because like i'm not a morbid person i don't like you know horror films or you Mm -hmm. know dark energy from 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 different things like that so when people Mm -hmm. are you know like you know going through something and you know, um, considering suicide and possibly following through. Um, I, I just, I don't, I don't get into the details too much, but that is, a kind of a, a wild way to go. It's just like in, you know, in Korea, you know, that a lot of people jump in front of the trains, the, the subways. Right. Um, but like, this seems to be, you know, analogous to that.
0: Yeah. Just It wasn't like a planned thing. It was just, I just need to get out as fast as I can. Um, Let's go on to the last couple bits of trivia here. Hampton was really accused of stealing $70 worth of ice cream. Nelson Suit, an ice cream truck driver, testified that Hampton held him down while his crew looted his truck. The party has denied the accusations and said that Hampton didn't get a fair trial. And the last bit, Fred Hampton Jr. and Akua Najiri, formerly Fred Hampton's girlfriend, Deborah Johnson, were consultants for this film. And there were some disagreements about the direction, for example, of course, centering William. Shaka King recounts the difficulties of pleasing the studio, the producers, and Hampton's family. But for the most part, everyone was satisfied. And I don't know about you, but I'm quite curious to know what the family wanted, uh, but what got axed and even what a multinational corporation like wb wanted but also got got left out like did they say oh you can't say anti-capitalist in this movie but he was like no nah, no nah, we doing this kind of thing or were they okay with it you know
1: yeah i think i think like we're got, we're all gonna be waiting for the for the shaka king tell all later on in his career you know yeah. when he doesn't have any bridges to burn to find out like what some of that stuff was yeah totally before we move on, can I can I just uh, I had one little bit of trivia because I I watched the it's not a trivia or anything, but I I watched the movie with the subtitles on because I I always watch movies with the with the closed captioning and stuff on there so I can catch something. Um, the the officer who told who at the very you know you know end where they go in and they um when Fred Hampton is drugged and they go into his apartment uh the the officer who shouts uh everybody freeze get down you know this that and the other Mm -hmm. uh his name is officer blart and that just made me think of like paul blart mall cop and i was just like (laughs) 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 i don't know it's just weird uh and then also like i feel like the cutest part of the movie um was between like deborah and um and fred uh when uh when they were talking about their feet being cold. And then he's like, this is socialism. Your feet are cold and my feet are cold too. And then uh, she was like, are you calling me a foot capitalist? And I thought that was adorable.
0: That was adorable. I also like when she was like, I know you were shy. And he's like, I I ain't shy.
1: (laughs) Yeah, shyly. He shyly says, I ain't shy.
0: I mean, we got to realize this dude just recently came out of being a teenager. So, I mean, there are some men who have a lot of experience at that point. But who knows what? he had gotten into he seemed he seems to have been pretty focused on on studying i don't i don't really know his experience with women at that point so
1: it's so funny because boots riley talked about when he was in the growing up in the bay and how he got into socialism it was just like because there were girls and he was just like he was interested in socialism he became a socialist because there were so many girls there uh and so it's just like hmm. i wonder how how fred hampton uh you know made that journey you know basically Mm. into socialism if it's a similar story Let's take a quick break and we'll be right back with our discussion of
0: Judas and the Black Messiah's soundtrack. Let's jump into the soundtrack, which was a surprise to me. It got announced really recently. This is in the vein of Black Panther, where at the time, Kend- at the time, Kendrick Lamar curated tracks for and inspired by the film. This time, Hitboy is executive producer, along with Ryan Coogler, who also produced this film, Dash Rod and Archie Davis. Now, when I put this to iTunes, I did a quick glance at the list. And some names excited me and some concerned me. As popular as the Black Panther soundtrack was, I had some issues with it. There are a lot of gems on it. But there were some songs that seemingly had little to nothing to do with that movie. Uh, Schoolboy Q's collaboration with 2 Chainz and Saudi is an example. Uh, I think it was Saudi who was who said a quote about she's swallowing my children (laughs) and of course the moment that generated the biggest head turns and memes was future on king's dead i'm like bro what are you doing (laughs) what is this what does any of that have to do with this movie
1: I don't know. I feel like um, as it relates to, you know, the entire diaspora, they were they were saying that, like, there was this invading, you know, force into Wakanda, you know, through kind of Killmonger who came from, you know, Oakland or whatever else like that. And I kind of see where, like, they were trying to show, like, here is the the regal, you know, royal, you know you know, side of it and here's like the hood side of it, you know, a little bit. Um, I kind of got that, but I, I kind of see what you're saying, like where, you know, future really doesn't have a place in that.
0: Not at all. Um, to your point, the song with, I forgot their names, SOE or ROB. ROB yeah. is the Nintendo character. But uh, But yeah, I thought that song fit that kind of gangster Killmonger vibe. I dug that song. But,
1: yeah, uh, and it was West Coast. You know, it, it had like a West Coast feel to it. So it, it made sense a little bit more.
0: What I would have really liked, and I wish I had a podcast at this time, but you remember the, the Spawn and Blade soundtracks where they blended rock and electronic music or rap and electronic music? I would have loved for Black Panther because it's such a cross of African-American style and African style but to have Native African producers and performers work with african-american producers and artists i thought that would have killed
1: yeah that would have been cool i think
0: it's like you're already going to make billions of dollars with this black panther film use it as a vehicle to introduce new people and just be creative i think you, you could have a lot more liberty with those kind of projects, and i 'll get into that with this with this soundtrack too, you know, as you were talking about, you were kind of given a pass because these are inspired by fictional characters. But I think when it comes to someone with such defined politics and philosophy as Fred Hampton, you would think the executive producers would be more judicious in their selection, but unfortunately, that isn 't the case here and I mentioned previously in the show about liberals mentioning. Uh, Dr. King's name when they don't represent what he stands for. And that comes out in this soundtrack too many times.
1: Yeah, I feel like um, what they did was they probably, and the same thing they did with the TDE slash Kendrick, uh, you know, thing with, with Black Panther, with Judas and the Black Messiah soundtrack. It's just like, they decided to just let one person be the curator and just kind of trust them in kind of a representative democracy way where it's just like, we've elected you to be the arbiter of, you know, this, what's going on this soundtrack or whatever.
0: Yeah. And yeah, it, it's very mixed. It's a roller coaster. The opening track with spoken word from Fred Hampton Jr. Who is the current president and chairman of the Black Panther Party Cubs. Uh, it was dope. Uh, si- side note, he has a GoFundMe page to save his childhood home. Google, save the Hampton House. It has almost reached its goal. I donated already, so give what you can. The album then cuts to Fight For You by Her, which we've heard in the trailers. And I love this song. It has a, a retro funk riff, guitar riff, with some modern touches. Modern touches. I'm thinking, like, this is off to a great start.
1: Yeah, I, I actually enjoyed a lot of the... And I kind of feel like after I listened to the whole thing, I might have been happier if... The entire soundtrack was R and B, just because I feel like you know, unless you get the the right type of hip hop that aligns itself with you know stylistically, you know, um, with um, you know the era a little bit more, um, I would have liked if, if this whole you know um, project would have been R and B and soul, I might have been happier,
0: or have these R and B soul funk samples and put the right rappers on them. Like you could, again, there's so much creativity you could have with this and they just drop the ball.
1: Yeah. I mean, that's what I meant by like stylistically there being, you know, like, here's the thing, like, you know, early Kanye West with, with all the soul samples and everything else like that, those type, that type of production with, you know, the, you know, choosing the, the, the right type of rapper and stuff on there that could have been, you know, um, awesome amazing you know if if we had a a previous iteration of kanye available at this time (laughs)
0: um i thought the first snag comes with that Nas song uh epmd it just felt out of place for one thing i don't know how you feel about it but that beat is grating to my ears it sounds like someone looped cats meowing outside for a beat uh for like three minutes it's like meow, meow, meow. Ah, it's, it's so unlistenable to me. And it's wild that Nas's inconsistency with choosing quality beats persists after he's been rapping for 30 years.
1: <laughs> yeah. I mean, I've 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 been as far as Nas, he's, you know, incredible lyricist, but I've never really been a fan, you know, a huge fan of just like letting his CDs rock Same. um like straight through just because it's just like I can't deal with this. He's he's not really that's he's not really good at, you know, beats and choosing beats. He doesn't really have an ear because maybe he's just a, such a talented lyricist. He'd be like, I'll flow over anything. And it's just like, yeah, we know, but like try to try to keep us in mind a little bit.
0: Totally. And you know, from the the verses to the course of this song, it's just prosperity rap. EPMD be back in business. I visualize what it is, not what it isn't. We at the mafia table next to the kitchen, eating Michelin star, counting a million. Contrast that with Hampton's message about black capitalism,
1: even in this movie,
0: and you don't belong here.
1: Well, well, maybe he's representing the the Bill O'Neill, you know, um, aspect of of this story. I think if billionaire
0: became really famous or you know became rich then sure i mean he was a lawyer that was his kind
1: of goal right his goal was like in you know all the petty crime and this that and the other he was trying to get to a a space and and at at every moment he was demanding oh i got to be paid for this you got to pay me you know this that and the other so it was you know representative of the 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 black capitalism type of idea
0: man fair enough um but black thought song uh he went off on welcome to america that that gospel chorus behind him really elevated that song
1: beyond just rhymes over a beat yeah thought black thought always comes through
0: yeah like he's he's presented himself as kind of like almost a force of nature lately with his stream of thought albums and his freestyles and on this song he just channels the the struggle, the pain, and the, the perseverance of all Black people from slavery to now. And it's just, it's an incredible song. I, I felt like this is what the album should be about. It definitely is one of the highlights for me. Yeah,
1: yeah. I mean, if we, if we had had Black Thought curate the uh, soundtrack, it could have been Ooh. something else completely.
0: Thank you. Uh, Jay-Z's collab with Nip- Nipsey was dope. Even though Jay is one of the biggest proponents of Black capitalism and rap, he toned it down on this song and he has some great bars that build up on themselves. He made it topical referencing the recent insurrection at the Capitol. He said, uh, you let them crack your storm, your Capitol, put their feet up on your desk. And yet you're talking tough to me. I lost all my respect. I'm selling weed in the open, bringing folks home from the feds. So I I didn't know this, but Jay-Z has a, either he will, or is he has a legal marijuana business now. And he's been using that money to get people home from their own convictions.
1: Yeah, I mean Jay Z's always dropping dropping gems and letting us know what he's doing. You know, if you if you want to know what Jay Z's doing, he'll tell you. You know, um in, in every album he has like a different you know, oh, you know, um, now I'm buying art, you know, that that was, you know, one album where it was all about like, right, I'm I'm right. buying Basquiat's and stuff. And then, you know, now he's talking about, I mean, he doesn't have an album, but like, he's got to peep in on a song to let you know what he's doing because he's very much private. He doesn't do the social media thing very much. And, you know, so like, you, you got to find out what he's doing in his music and he's always going to let you know. True, true, true
0: um hit boy himself had a song on here and he barely did anything on that
1: terrible yeah i didn't even know Hitboy boy rapped and i'm just like right now thinking like you know not everybody can be kanye you know some people some people got to be just blaze some people got to be you know like not everybody got to do both but i mean it was his project and he felt like this is my my opportunity i guess
0: he put an album out, I want to say either last year or 2019, and it was it was terrible. I, I deleted it immediately. Um, I think it picked back up with the nice four-track run that starts with Smino and Saba. I love those guys. Finally, Chicago artists on the album. Apparently, no name was supposed to be on this track, but she passed after watching the film, citing that it was because Hampton and his politics were secondary to the story of William O'Neill. And she said that, you know, it was shot beautifully and all that jazz, but she wanted to be involved with something different fair enough jd's track with uh Masego and rhapsody was also
1: dope J- jid to be sure not jd jid that's um, it, okay my, my bad. yeah J-I-D. anyway I, I really i really messed with jid and rhapsody um and i guess Masego as well um so this one was okay for me the two biggest uh fails
0: to me G Erbo is a Chicago rapper and he was also out of place. I never really liked him as a rapper. And on this song, he's or on the first song he had, he was offbeat with the rhymes, and he just talks about nothing.
1: Yeah. I I I listened to the first, first one, and like, see, here's the thing. I don't look at the track listing while I listen. You know, I just kind of like listen to the whole album all the way through. And, like, it's just, like, he's on there saying, like, I'm G Herbo. Like, it's G Herbo here. And so it's just, like, I know, like, who's on the song. And I'm just, like, all right, well, I, I don't like this song. And then the second one that he was on was a little bit better. It was uh, right. actually uh, quite a bit better than the first one. But um, I still don't think, like, why why did he get two tracks on here?
0: No, totally. Dom K, I think, approached future level of what are you doing? Fred had a great line in the movie um, about women, right? They're not just your sisters. They're your sisters in arms. And what is Dom Kennedy's response? I like how they do it with no teeth. <laughs> I mean, bruh, come on. Hampton, Hampton would be rolling in his grave listening to this album dedicated to him.
1: Well, Hampton, I think Hampton would realize he had a lot more work to do because he's <laughs> out here trying to educate these young brothers. And, you know, like he would sit down and have a talk with, uh, with Dom Kennedy the way that he had a talk, sat down and had a talk with, uh, Bill O'Neill. That was, a, that was an interesting moment from the movie, though, too, where he's just like, he told him to stand up and then he didn't stand up. So Fred Hampton went down there and sat next to him, you know, and sat down with him, you know. So it's just like, yeah, we, we, we're going to have to talk to G Herbo and, and, and Dom Kennedy. And, every, you know some other people on here
0: yeah I mean I guess you could say they represent the Will O'Neill part of the film but I don't think Will O'Neill did enough in the film to connect to what those people are talking about Dom Kennedy went on the course uh I got the right to bear arms to protect what I own I protect mine especially when I have all this gold and I'm just uh
1: you know I mean I feel like you know This album doesn't really have like the cohesion, you know, like from, you know, like it's it's very much um, hit boy, you know, reaching out to people that he worked with or before or had relationships with and putting together it like it doesn't really have a cohesive flow, which I feel like Black Panther did a lot better job of having a little bit more cohesion. Uh, especially when they were bringing in like certain sound effects from the movie into the production of, of certain you know tracks and everything else like that. I feel like it had a lot more keeping it together than, than this project does.
0: Well, A, it was shorter. And then at the very least, on Black Panther, Kendrick would every now and again just be like, I am Killmonger. To let you know, this is what the song's yeah. about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it didn't always work for me, but as you said, it did a better job than this.
1: Yeah. I would say that I, I like that song, Sir. Sir's song, Teach Me. Yeah, song was good. Yeah. So, I mean, like the, the R&B stuff on here, the R&B soul stuff on here was on point. Um,
0: I just, I don't want it to become a habit going forward for black capitalists to whitewash black leftists who can't defend themselves as their names are and legacies are being bastardized and then claim accolades and do this media push. Like, can we take these people seriously? We talked about the media rollout with WW84, Wonder Woman, and it would be hypocritical to not point out how problematic this album is on the black side. Can we address the fact that there are only three women on a 22-track album? If Fred was for a Rainbow Coalition, why weren't there any Native American or Latin, Latinx American artists on here? Any queer artists, openly queer artists? There's, there's no Lupe? Common ain't my favorite rapper right now, but you could have gotten him to do the Fred Hampton
1: closing track over Rakim
0: even though he did fine.
1: Bruh, Lupe on this album seems like it would have been just a, you know, a home run. I mean like w- why wouldn't you have Lupe on? He's a Chicago artist. You know, he's he's able to deal with the content um and it's like I guess I guess Hip-Boy ain't have his number. I mean Lupe made a dope song about
0: dinosaurs an ode to walking through a museum of dinosaurs with his was it was his his nephew or something
1: yeah i, I that's that's a, a standout track i mean honestly he can make music about anything
0: anything he could make a amazing track about tying his shoe if he wanted to and you can't get him on the on a track about fred hampton it's criminal and how are you going to have a black messiah album without the black messiah himself d'angelo this whole soundtrack's a mess
1: I don't know. I don't know if it's uh if it's a a consequence of of COVID where you know um a lot of things like we're not, we don't know when we're going to release this movie and like uh what are we going to do for a soundtrack you know because they already had the score and the score you know is what it is it's it's a part of the movie but like I think a lot of times like the the soundtrack is going to be kind of a an afterthought you know, for a lot of these things where it's just like how it's 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 basically promotion. It's basically just like, who can we get on this album that is going to, you know, multiply this into a, a lot of different, you know, this that a lot of different, you know, areas, I guess. And, and it's just like. I, I I missed the the time from like you know above the rim soundtrack you know what I'm saying where it was just like everything kind of like fit into it a lot better and it was just like it was thoughtful I feel like this this doesn't really you know uh, like I I've been sitting here trying to defend a lot of the uh the stuff on here well maybe it's this playing the devil's advocate a little bit you know but it's just like honestly I don't believe it you know and it's just like I'm just trying to create content here. <laughs> But, um, but yeah, I I, I miss when, when uh, soundtracks were a lot more or thoughtful, I suppose.
0: And they were real compliments to the film. Because at the end of the day, we're not going to sit and watch this two-hour movie constantly. But if we're walking around, driving in our cars, we're definitely going to be listening to the music that has been curated for the film. You mentioned the great one, Above the Rim, Juice. And so for such a powerful movie as this, you don't have an accompanying soundtrack that either gives you that sense of black empowerment, or maybe it gives you the sense of what William O'Neill's going through, but also talk about the dangers of that philosophy, I think was a serious misstep.
1: I agree. I'd be interested to find out what the production cycle like this was for. Like if Mm -hmm. they came to Hit Boy at the very last minute, and it was just like he was going with a bunch of stuff that he already had in the can, Uh, And it was just like, if it was like really accelerated schedule or something else like that, or, you know, I mean, I think that that probably plays into it. If you have something that's a little bit more drawn out where they're giving you a year or something else like that, or even six months, then you can definitely come up with something better. But if they were just like panicking at the last minute and said, okay, Hit Boy, do you think you can put together a whole album for us for this movie? Uh, And then this is what he came up with. Um, that's, you know, uh, I think I'd be interested to find out what that, uh, what that, if it was a compressed schedule or not.
0: Well, you even look at Jay-Z's verse. It obviously came out right after the insurrection. So
1: could have been just a month. Yeah. Cause I think someone else said something about, um, I think there was another reference on the album from somebody else about that too, but I can't quite remember.
0: Okay. So we've criticized this album I want to talk about who we would like to have on the album now i think we talked about lupe already i would love to have no name on there common from chicago i love diverse but diverse hasn't made music in like a decade but he's phenomenal most deaf would be great immortal
1: technique those are all dope choices Uh, i was thinking more somebody like from from the revolutionary side uh, Dead Prez, because they've been talking about you know Fred Hampton and the Panthers and everything since way before this film was you know even being conceptualized. So I think like you know and and I really mess with you know M one and Stickman. So uh, I would I would love to hear them uh, and their voice uh, and their energy, you know, for for a soundtrack like this. Sure, uh, Zach de la Roca, of course, we dope. Yeah, that would have been kind of a a crossover, you know, a little bit, you know, hearing a little bit of guitars and and, and stuff like that in the, in a track with Zach Delaroca, that would have been dope too.
0: Yeah, we're running long. Let's get to a, to WandaVision. One, come on, Don't try to fight
1: the chaos. Don't question what you've done. The game can try to play
0: us. We you, now, you and I couldn't really talk too much about this because Sky hadn't caught up last time, but we can we can go all in now.
1: Yeah, for sure. And um, I, I, in the last episode, I, I said um, I had a prediction about like which, what would be, what sitcom would kind of be the theme. And I was just like, I felt like I was spot on because I was just like, it's got to be like family ties or something else like that. I was thinking full house, but I was like, nah, full house isn't exactly the, the right situation, but something like family ties would be. Um, and so, yeah, I was, I was.
0: Just to be clear, you're talking about episode five, not the newest one.
1: Yeah, episode five, because that's the one where we said we can't talk about it yet because Scott had only seen episode four. You're right. You're right. You're right.
0: Yeah. Let's start with the major reveal last week. uh, Wanda, quote unquote, recast Pietro. Yeah. Now, did you read about this this leak beforehand?
1: Um, no, I didn't, but uh, I when I saw it happen, I was just like, okay, this like immediately the theory started going in my mind as as to you know whether it was just like kind of like a production thing Mm -hmm. or or production side kind of decision, or if it was like a you know very much a creative you know storyline that is going to be tie into multiverse you know ideas and stuff like that again later. So but yeah, uh, as soon as it happened, I was just like, oh, that's the wrong Pietro, you know? And I was just like, okay, well, all right, let's see where this goes. I can't remember the
0: last time I dropped my jaw watching really anything. Um, I think, well, you know, South Park, when Cartman, you know, fed that bully his parents, that was a jaw drop moment for me.
1: Na, 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 na. I made you eat your parents. Na, 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 na. Jesus Christ, dude.
0: I can't remember the last time I did something like that. I did. Here there were rumors after this episode but i'm glad i didn't see them like i think you said before that spoiling things ahead of time doesn't really matter for you yeah. but for me it does like i feel like a kid when i don't see things coming like what if it was spoiled that jk simmons was coming back in, in that new spider-man film or that cap was gonna pick up the hammer like we talked about these planned leaks for marketing but i really like the pleasant surprises these days. I think Pietro's reveal really blew the doors off of what is now possible in the MCU. They can literally pull anyone from anywhere.
1: Yeah, I'm I'm excited about that too because I want mutants in the MCU.
0: Let's go to that. The Scarlet Witch in the Marvel Universe is considered a Nexus being, and this is from Marvel's wiki page, and this is in the comics who she is. Nexus beings are rare individual entities with the ability to affect probability and thus the future therefore altering the flow of the universal time stream these beings each referred to as a nexus act as the keystones of the multiverse and are crucial to its ultimate coherence and stability one nexus being alone supposedly exists on each of the parallel worlds of the multiverse and personify the character of their respective realms And serve as the focal point or anchor of that reality each being also acts the node of the mystic energy of their respective worlds and so because of that we can now understand how she pulled pietro who was alive somewhere uh and it's also understandable why she paused when evan peters said kick ass did you you catch that yeah And it's worth remembering that aaron taylor johnson played kick-ass in the 2010 film five years before he was Quicksilver. And Evan Peters was also in that movie. I don't know if they're gonna do anything with Kick-Ass though because he was published under Icon and Image Comics and they don't have the rights to that.
1: Yeah, uh, it's it's also interesting that uh, those two, the the actors for uh, Scarlet Witch and Quicksilver, um, they've been in other stuff together too. I think they were in Godzilla together. Yep. That's correct, um, and they were like what husband and wife or something in that instead of brother and sister, right. um so yeah it's it's interesting, you know, uh, and that's uh the monster verse for um a different you know kind of cinematic universe as well,
0: yeah, I wanna go a little further into the comic books stuff too, and we can start theorizing about what's gonna happen later on, um in the comic books. Wanda drew on magic energy to give birth to her sons, Tommy and Billy. But this energy was eventually revealed to have come from the demon Mephisto, who everyone is thinking is going to reveal himself soon. And he is a recurring Doctor Strange villain. And he reabsorbed the children, effectively ending their existence. And Agatha Harkness is a witch in the comic books. Who and she is in this film, not film, in this show, she casts a spell on Wanda to help her forget the children and to ease her pain. And apparently after this, Vision and her aren't as close. And we're already seeing this kind of split between her and Vision in the show. It's kind of like Civil War. It's like they have this name, or Infinity War, they have this name, and they're getting close to these storylines, taking bits of the storyline, but really adapting them for this specific narrative. And I think it's really cool. I'm very curious how that's going to turn out.
1: Yeah. And and a lot of people are, you know, um, theorizing that we've already seen Mephisto uh, in WandaVision already. Um, You know, um, a lot of people I saw um, were saying that it's possible that he was the postman Mm, okay. uh, and, you know, there's a scene where he's, where she's walking with uh, Tommy and Billy, and the postman says, oh, Don't worry, your mother won't let anything happen to you, or something else like that. And that, and the way the look that he kind of gave everyone's just like, Oh, they're, they're foreshadowing this is actually Mephisto and he's kind of, you know, plotting on the children right now, you know. Mm. Uh, and uh, a lot of people were just wondering, Is it actually Wanda who brought Pietro in? uh because then you know like um there's that there's also that scene and i'm not sure if it was episode five or six now uh i think it was six uh when they were um talking about um where he was sitting down there and he was kind of interrogating her uh why are you do- how are you doing this you know you can trust me and it's it seems like you know it's not necessarily something that she would bring into her world and kind of control. It's something that someone else might be injecting into her world you know to try to uh find a way to overpower her or to break her her hold on something maybe i
0: you know what that's a good point i There's a lot to dig into there. Did you catch in that Malcolm in the middle kind of opening there was a naughty on Agatha's butt. I think you know she is a villain of some sort you know she had that scene with vision at the end but i think that was a red herring she helped the kids grow so they could become more powerful and i wonder if she's helping them become more powerful so when Mephisto it possibly consumes them it's more power for him she killed the dog so the kids could push wanda to maybe think about bringing folks back from the dead she pushed vision to go outside the wall and possibly to encourage Wanda to further expand her powers. I think she's doing more than she lets on for sure. Like, I I don't, I don't think she's that helpless.
1: Yeah. But do you, do you think that um, when vision, you know, touched her head or like basically, you know, released her from, you know, that do you believe that that's, you know, something intentional where she's, She's just switching the role because she knows that like Vision expects this to be some sort of a truth serum, you know, type of thing, and that's her opportunity. I think it's possible. So we
0: talked about in the theme song for this new WandaVision episode. We caught the the naughty on Agatha's butt. But did you catch the lyric at the very beginning of the song when it says, Don't try to fight the chaos? When I heard it two times, I was like, Chaos, chaos. And then I thought about it. In the comic books Wanda's powers come from chaos magic and in the beginning yeah. of her introduction into Marvel she had these hex powers that affected reality it kind of gave people bad luck so you know if she's fighting a bad guy if if it's possible to slip on a banana peel they'll slip on a banana peel that's just being silly but whatever if if they had guns their guns could like jam that was the like the probability that she affected them
1: so she was like a, a a reverse domino who, like domino, everything she does was good luck. And she was just like, she made people have bad luck.
0: Exactly. But then later on, those powers expanded. And we're seeing in the MCU now, Scarlet Witch was only limited to telepathy and telekinesis. But it seems now that her powers are expanding. And in that song, it's giving us maybe a hint that sh- they're expanding because she is drawing upon this chaos magic. And even in the comic books, when Agatha Harkness taught her how to develop her powers, she was using chaos magic, but didn't know what it was. And in this TV show, she also doesn't seem to know how she's doing these things. And so I think it will be the revelation by the end of this show that she is tapping into this source. And we talk about Mephisto, but apparently in the comic books, when Wanda was born, she was touched by this ancient demon god who was, I don't know if he was the source of chaos magic, but he used it a lot. And he touched her and gave her a fraction of his powers in efforts that when she got older, she could become the vessel for his return.
1: And this is some some old Harry Potter type stuff going on right now, too, <laughs> with Voldemort and, and Harry Potter and the little Mark. Um, yeah. Interesting. How do you think that that revelation is going to come about? Do you think it's going to have anything to do with Darcy being inside of the the Hex now?
0: I'm not sure about Darcy's kind of a wild card. I'm not sure about that. But like I said, I don't think that Mephisto is going to manifest in the show. I think it's going to be I think it's going to be this God that kind of quote unquote gave Wanda her powers. I think he may be the end guy. And he'll kind of be like that Stephen Wolf. like I said, the Stephen Wolf to the the Mephisto dark side in like the Doctor Strange movie proper.
1: I mean, that sounds that sounds like something that that makes sense. You know, don't bring the big bad inside of the TV show. Leave them for the the feature film. Uh, but there is some sort of a bridge character in between uh, to to kind of uh, leave a trail of breadcrumbs, so to speak. Exactly.
0: Um, I think you you talked about. Mutants I think here's the big twist, and I could be wrong, but quote me here: in the comic book, Wanda had a breakdown, and she had the classic phrase, "No more mutants," and she erased about 90 percent of the mutant gene on Earth. And I think on the flip, she's going to have a breakdown and cause and actually cause more mutants in this universe. So we already see that she has affected people
1: at a molecular level,
0: and I think that's going to continue.
1: Yeah, um, so I would I would I would kind of agree with that, and I think that that's also uh, it's been foreshadowed that this is basically how um, Monica is going to get her powers as well. Right is is from from Scarlet Witch, you know, and actually passing through that barrier and having these all of these molecular changes um, that is going to basically what in be what endows her with with her her powers as well.
0: For Monica, I know people look at Monica as the first Captain Marvel, but technically she didn't have Captain Marvel's power. She was called Spectrum. She was hit with some extra dimensional energy and it allows her to change into different forms of energy. And so what we're seeing with Monica here is what she's changing into. I think there is some misconception about her actually becoming the next Captain Marvel and that's not who she is. So yeah, I'm excited about about that.
1: Yeah, I mean, I definitely don't know that she is going to, I mean, they're setting her up to be Captain Marvel, you know, or anything else just yet. I think it's more that she is going to get some powers and she is going to become a, a superpowered individual.
0: Yeah, Spectrum's pretty badass. And I also think that Doctor Strange is going to show up by the end of this. It's in the comic books, when Wanda has her breakdown, he eventually shows up after she makes the kids sensing kind of an abuse of magic and he used the eye of Agamotto on her and it put her into a catatonic state. And I think he's going to come in at some point and help solve this.
1: So wait, is he, is he one of these? he's not one of these Nexus characters or Nexus, you know, characters. He just has the, the eye of Agamotto, which has some limited because it's a, you know, um, time stone or whatever else like that to, to be able to manipulate time.
0: I think when he goes into that meditation with the Eye of Agamotto, it gives him that power, of course. But Scarlet Witch can do those kind of things by herself. I think that's the that's the big difference here. Um, did you catch the Easter egg? Uh, you know how movies are. They they kind of put up movies on a theater advertisement to to kind of mark the time period. Yeah. You have The Incredibles, which was a, a four-person team. Of course, Wanda, Vision, and... Um, and the kids, and you kind of factor in Snow, Snow Zone, was it Snow, Snow Zone, what was his name? Frozone. Uh, Frozone, who kind of has the same color suit as Quicksilver, as that kind of, as kind of that other guy out, outside the group.
1: Yeah, yeah, the blue motif, you know, the light blue kind of motif, yeah.
0: Then you have, of course, The Parent Trap,
1: was the other film,
0: and of course, The Twins. I'm very curious about what that means, The Parent Trap. That's definitely, that means something.
1: Yeah, they're cute. They're they're getting cute with it. I mean, but you know, this is this is part of what Marvel does uh, so well. They just have like all of. I I feel like it's a an Easter egg industry basically when it comes to a lot of their things. And you know, like uh, I may have said it before, I feel like they have a whole team that just works on like how do we slip in, you know, Easter eggs and references to this, that, and the other, and they just come in and and, and accentuate the story, the set, and everything else to to have these things there
0: no totally i want to at uh lastly i do want to touch upon how unsettling it is uh the juxtaposition of the sitcom styles of this show and how it mixes with the darkness and the mystery like at the last episode episode five vision vision confronts wanda about what she's doing and he's like you can't control me like you do them and she's like can i can't i And then the credits roll, and everyone just starts applauding, and he's like yelling, "Like, bro, like, no, 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 no we're not done here!" And like, the, the credits go away. Um. And then with this, I think this episode was the most unsettling because it was on Halloween too. But because of Malcolm's quirky style and and the music, but we're just seeing these weird things happening all the time. And even just the basic in the beginning, when Vision's kind of acting funny around Wanda about, "Oh, I gotta go," he's like wait, we didn't make big plans. Like, well, I got to do it anyway. And it's like this kind of, oh, this fun music. And it, you know, it's Vision discovering people on the edge of town caught in the loop was terrifying. And it's with that music. And that woman is trying to hang the decorations and the tears coming out of her eye. Like she's clearly conscious of what she's doing, but she can't break out. Even though they pose no threat to him, all those people just frozen. There was just this feeling of dread and those costumes didn't help.
1: Yeah, it was kind of creepy, but um it is juxtaposed kind of, you know, weirdly with the with the kind of sitcom uh, you know, going back and forth in between the sitcom format and then the the kind of twilight zone style.
0: Like this show, I think the show has honestly become darker than anything the movies have done so far.
1: Yeah, and I and it, as I said before, dark weird Marvel is is my bag. You know, so like I'm I'm happy that they're they're able to um, bring something that's like this to the small screen to to accentuate what's or set up maybe what's going to happen on the big screen, because I believe that, you know, in this phase of, of MCU, we're getting I think I think we're going to get a lot more dark stuff.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Oh, you know what I didn't mention before? I think Agnes also is pushing vision to go outside, not only to push Wanda's powers, but to also push uh, Wiccan's powers because he's pretty much uh, another Scarlet witch. Cause he wake, he, his powers awakened right when vision was in paint was in trouble.
1: Yeah, that's fair. That's, I mean, that's, that's a fair assumption that um, basically um, someone is trying to get, you know, the boys to a point where they're powerful Um, And and, and there's the little scene between Billy and Tommy where like, you know, he's like, oh, wait, how did you do that? When he's speeding past him and he puts up like a little stop sign for him basically and and halts him in his tracks where he's his powers are now awakened as well. Totally. So
0: we are running a bit late for time, but I do want to save some space for fan questions. And one of them actually pertains to the show. This question comes from Samati. From my hometown, St. Louis. Thank you for listening to the show. And he asks, "Do you think Wanda will become the villain of the show? What do you think, Draper?" Uh,
1: I think it's I think it's set up to be that way, but I think that that's also kind of a, a red herring. Um, it's 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 very much leading towards like a a heel turn or something else like that for for Wanda but um i think that she's not going to be the eventual you know kind of like big bad it's just like i think we, we're gonna find out that you know something else is is going on and and larger you know things are at play um especially when you you look at you know some of the the kind of comic book storylines that exist with you know i think that mephisto is definitely uh coming into play and um i mean for me it's it's very much like and I know you don't watch Game of Thrones, but it's very much like Daenerys uh, and Queen of Dragons type of thing um, where uh, Scarlet Witch is, you know, losing something and, and lashing out in some way. Um, but then, you know, s- something else is going to be, you know, something else is going to explain that.
0: My take, I'm, I'm about with you there. My take is, for those who don't know, the next three episodes are going to be an hour long. So they're really about about to push it there. But I think, I'm not even sure Mephizel's going to manifest in this show until maybe a stinger or maybe at the very end. I, I liken it to the Justice League where Steppenwolf was the main guy to set up Dark Side for later or Loki was there to set up for Thanos in that after credit sequence to set up for that multiverse uh, Doctor Strange film. But I think Scarlet Witch will be a greater enemy going forward and I think it's going to be maybe her battling with Vision, not necessarily having a fight but kind of like that in the X-Men anime series where the Phoenix was kind of whiling out and she had to kind of battle Xavier in in her mind kind of thing. Um, but I do see her becoming a a greater villain and I do see Doctor Strange coming in in the end to try to help wrap things up and we're still still juries out about who this engineer is to get rambo back into the field um so maybe he, he could play a plate. it could be reed richards who knows yeah uh I, do, you, do you think it's
1: reed I, I think it could be reed but i'm not sure how they're gonna do that in wandavision or if it will if he will appear in the flesh in in wandavision or just be like on the phone or on comms or something else like mm-hmm. that uh, because I think that they're really gonna try to go I hope that they try to go big with uh revamping the the fantastic four um i'm I'm a huge fan of uh the idea of who's the the little husband and wife team um Emily blunt and John Krasinski being mm-hmm. uh Reed and sue uh, and if they're they're not already kind of like signed into their contracts and everything else like that then um yeah I'd, I'd love to see them them be in the fantastic four uh movie um but yeah I, I i hope it's reed richards and i hope that that's the way that they're linking these stories together
0: yeah all right closing out we have one more fan question do you you watch anime draper
1: uh i'm i'm gonna tap out on this one because i'm i'm not really a a watcher of anime it's okay
0: um, this comes from Khadija from Houston. Thanks for writing to us, and she asks, "What is our favorite anime genre?" The thing is, it's like I feel like anime has more genres than just regular TV. There's just there's just they mix in so many things, right? It's comedy, sci-fi, or comedy, action, comedy, fantasy, comedy, slice of life. Is like everything has a has a a multiverse, <laughs> you know?
1: I really can't add anything to this conversation. Yeah, I mean, I I've watched like some older stuff, you know, Ghost in the Shell, Akira. I don't know what genres or whatever you would consider those, but um, it's not something cyberpunk. Yeah, I'm I'm I guess that w- that would definitely classify as like one of my favorite genres of anime and you know sci-fi film. You know, so um, yeah, that's that's my answer.
0: I'm about with you there. Uh, Ghost in the Shell, Standalone Complex is one of my favorite anime, and it's pretty much tied with One Piece, which is totally not cyberpunk. And I think what links those together is the amazing world building each anime does. One Piece obviously has had a much longer time to really create their world, but Ghost in Shell, just in its condensed two seasons, did a wonderful job of establishing the politics of that place um, and and the technology and how people interact with it so that's not really a genre world building but i would say <laughs> cyberpunk is definitely up there i've watched other cyberpunk of course akita and psychopaths etc but um that's as best as i can
1: give you right now tight i mean uh i i didn't think that uh, i had a, an anime genre but now it's well defined for me
0: there you go hey you khadija you helped draper figure himself out. Um, all right. Well, we're going to end this show. It's been a long ride, but I hope you all got a lot of information and perspective from the show. Again, you can reach us at Instagram at b l e r d p u p. You can find us on Facebook at B-L-E-R-D-U-P. And you can find us on Twitter at B-L-E-R-D. You find us on Blurred.com, our partners. Just a quick shout out again. I did this article about the uh, 20 definitive Blurred Rap albums. If you actually Google Blurred Rap right now, my article comes up like, the first one so i think that's pretty cool i own blurred rap now
1: nice i didn't know that so uh you're you're just this is breaking news for me too um but yeah i mean um blurred rap i mean pharaoh you know pharaoh mont you know like that was you know like a very you know blurred hit for me like when that when that album dropped again um yeah so uh i i'm I'm not sure if you've got uh any of his his albums on your top 50 for sure it's got to be there
0: it's top 20 but yeah uh, his organized confusion album stress the extinction agenda is definitely on there yeah
1: and uh and uh lupe definitely got to be up there lupe is on there for sure
0: but the rest you all will have to see for yourself for black history month give it a, give it a look all right thank you all very much actually we're going to close the show on you know speaking of wandavision there's a new freestyle by Randall Park from 2019 that has resurfaced on social media. And we're going to end on that song. Um, there's some rumors about him, you know, people wanting him to have kind of an X-Files kind of show for Marvel. I think that'd be really dope to do. He become he'd kind of become the new Coulson in a sense.
1: Cool. 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 I, I definitely think uh Tierra whack is, is, is an up and comer for blurred rap too. She's kind of killing it.
0: No, you're totally right. I, I like her a lot. I I put, the album the uh, the article concept was more about kind of what made the most impact and she hasn't really been out that that long to really make that impact yet but she she's definitely could definitely do it i i respect her a lot all right y'all take care thanks for listening and peace Later, y'all. The baddest on the microphone apparatus is here. When I rock a rhyme, often eyes are dropping a tear. It's so beautiful, it's America's landscapes when this man makes lyrics like the syrups that you pour upon your pancakes. My mandate is to grip minds like a handshake, spit Orlando lakes, and go skinny dip with the fan base.
1: Over any damn break I hastily make pastries tastier than anything that Wolfgang makes. So take notes out of suckers, I make coats, lump a sum like Bubba Gump, fishing on lake boats. I take jokes and turn the comedy into drama, I'm bagging on your mama,
0: I'm Jeffrey Dahmer behind ya, I'm a rhyme writer, lock, stock, smoking the ganja, rebuttals befuddle, leaving a puddle of saliva, Silly's, you couldn't handle Randall when I throw my grammar at you, it hit your head and you would think I threw a hammer at you, I point the camera at you like Herb Ritz, develop it, then use the pictures to pick up bird shits, you're nervous is the
1: impervious wordsmiths, hanging out in Rafa's new crib, come with the verses. Yeah.